All right, well, new year, new book to study. <laughs> and we're going to be going through First Thessalonians. And we're going to start that book this morning. Um, we're going to be looking at the first chapter, all 10 verses of it. And uh, I entitled the Bible study, The Real Deal. You've probably heard the old uh, saying that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. But it also could be a, a great source of confusion, deception, and disappointment. You know, it, it's, it's guaranteed that as soon as anything great is established or invented, uh, there's a rush to imitate it by people who are looking to make a quick buck. Or for those that desire to have the appearance of greatness, uh, but have no strength of character to actually achieve it on their own. I'm sure in, in the last week over Christmas, there were plenty of uh, gifts wrapped. And when they were opened, the labels said Gucci and Louis Vuitton. Um, but they were probably made by Cheech and Chong somewhere in the, in the Far East uh, for, for pennies on the dollar. And, uh, and that's just the way the world goes. Now, when we do uncover true greatness, we, we, have, a, we have a term for that. It's, we call it the real deal. It's a designation that someone or something or action is the general, genuine article, and it is truly great. And when the early church decided to, to name deacons among their number, the first person they chose was, was Stephen. Uh, at least he's the first name listed, and he was described as a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. He was the real deal. And we could assume and safely conclude that, that uh, Paul's young mentee, Timothy, must have been the real deal because Paul exhorts him in 1 Timothy 4.12. He said, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to believers in, the, in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. In other words, Paul was essentially saying that when people see you, Timothy, they will see a real Christian. Now, like individual Christians, there are churches which are the real deal. If you were to go into such a church, you would, you would immediately sense the presence of the Holy Spirit. You would see things that are done neatly and in order. You would see, you would hear the word of God preached in a way that is true to what the Lord has put down in scripture through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we, we might ask ourselves if we were to walk into such a church, like this one, I hope, what, what would we learn? What would we learn? What would we see that would give us a means by which we could calibrate our own walk? Because really, that's one of the great values of those kinds of examples, is when you see the real deal, whether it be an individual Christian or a church, you know, comparisons are inevitable, and you, you hold up your walk to that, and, and you, you have a sense of where you stand. And so today, as Paul opens this letter to the Thessalonians, we're going to see what he calls out about them qualities that he sees in them individually and also as their church, which when you put them together, you, you draw no other conclusion but that this church and these people were the real deal. And Paul's commendation of them must have been greatly encouraging for them, and I find it greatly useful for us. So uh, if you would, please stand with me. We're going to just start with reading the first five verses, and then we'll pick up the other five uh, or six verses, five verses after. So here's what it says. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and Father. Knowing, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men were, we were among you for your sake. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the faithfulness of the Holy Spirit working through faithful men to codify this letter and transmit it forward 
20-some centuries to us, Lord. Because as we read about this church, Lord, we come into sharp focus with exactly what made this church special. And these are qualities and these are things that we desire to emulate, Lord, and we desire to be true about us. And so, Father, open our hearts of understanding and our ears, Lord, and our minds that we might uh, glean from this passage these precious characteristics, Lord. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, let me first start out by um, zeroing in a little bit on what this letter is all about and, um, and, and what Paul's mission was in sending this letter. Uh, Paul, Timothy, and Silas. Now, he's identified in that first verse as Silvanus, Silas, Silvanus, same individual. They founded this church in Thessalonica on Paul's second missionary journey after Paul saw in a dream a man from Macedonia calling him to come over there to help him. It's referred to as the Macedonian vision or the Macedonian call. And the church of Thessalonica was the second, the second place that Paul preached the gospel to in the continent of Europe, Philippi being the first. And Paul and his team began preaching in the local synagogue. You can read all about this in Acts chapter 17. But Paul and his team, they begin as they always did to the Jew first and then to the rest of the world. Uh, they started in the local synagogue there. And uh, Acts tells us that they preached there about three straight Sabbaths. Um, but before long, they, uh, the, the, some of the Jewish people from the synagogue were rising up against Paul and his team because they were leading lots of people to Christ, Jew and Gentile alike. And so they, they had to move out of the synagogue, but they continued to preach and more and more Gentiles were coming to faith and they were being baptized until finally um, the people were up in arms and they got the authorities and Paul had to sneak out of the city uh, and, and go away from there because of the danger to him. Um, but in the meantime, many Greeks or, or Gentiles and women were saved. That's what Acts chapter 17 tells us. And so Paul, having left the place, and he is only there... We know he was there at least three weeks. He was probably there a few more weeks because after leaving the synagogue, he still preached among the Gentiles there. But he was there a relatively short period of time. And so he's concerned about how the church is progressing. You know, when you start up a new church and whatnot, and then you leave it in the hands of relatively young and inexperienced leadership, there's always the danger that they can go off, off course. And so Paul sends Timothy back there to encourage the believers there and to check on how they're progressing and, and to also check on whether or not they have um, been victims of false doctrine. And he also knew that they were suffering a lot of persecution from not only the Jews of the synagogue, but also the, the pagan Greeks of the area who, who considered them lunatics. And so Paul had sent Timothy there. Timothy comes back to Paul and he's got this glowing report. He tells Paul that the church is healthy. It's thriving. It's exhibiting many characteristics of a healthy, godly church. They were progressing the right way. In other words, the church in Thessalonica was the real deal. And so <clears throat> Paul decides to write this letter to send it back to the Thessalonians to encourage them to, to express thanks, thankfulness for what the Lord is doing in that place. He also found the need to defend himself against slanderous claims that were being made against him because of the fact that he had been there and led so many to Christ. But we'll see as we progress through the letter that he also wanted to speak to them very specifically on doctrinal issues, most especially their questions concerning family members and loved ones that had died before the Lord Jesus returned. One of the things that will become very clear in the letter is all of these people believe that Jesus would return in their lifetime. And frankly, I believe that Jesus Christ wanted every believer from the day of Pentecost until right now to have that expectation that he could return at any time. 
Now, we have a lot more reason to believe that than them because we're another 2,000 years into the future. But we'll see as we progress through 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians that Paul has a lot to say. In fact, some of the very best assurances of the Lord coming to get us, his church, and bring us up in the air to meet him are found in these two letters. And so we'll see that as we go along. Now, Paul starts out the letter uh, much the way he starts most, if not all, of his epistles. We see there he, he wishes to them grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to receive the grace of God, that's perhaps the most valuable thing we could pray on behalf of anybody, is to ask the Lord to give them grace. And grace comes in all different uh, sizes and shapes. Um, the first and most important conference of grace is salvation. And then after we've been saved, the grace to make it through each and every day with the challenges that we face in our daily walk in Christ, walking through a sin-saturated world, knowing that the sin nature in which we were born still resides in the background of us, it can rear its head at any time. And we know that it's the grace of God that allows us to come boldly before the throne of grace. We know that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's the grace of God. And when we pray that on someone, I pray not only that the grace of God would be bestowed upon them, but that they would sense it. They would receive it. God shows grace to everybody every day. Not everybody receives it. Some hearts are so hardened that they cannot see the beauty of the Lord that's right there in front of them. I see the grace of God in every one of the faces of my grandchildren. I see the grace of God in the faces of every one of the children here. And by wishing them grace, he guarantees them peace. Because when you live in and walk in the grace of God, you have peace with God. You know, the world would never want to admit this. But the most important, the most valuable, the most critical need that every human being needs is peace with God. It's because we are at enmity with God when we are born into the world that all of the tragedies, all of the heartache, all of the injustices of the world are visited upon us. And yet when we have peace with God, it doesn't make all those things go away. But what it does is it gives us a whole new perspective on how we make it through those things. He doesn't, he doesn't remove them from us. He, he walks with us through those things. We have the peace of God because we have the grace of God active in our life. Now he turns to some of the, the indicia, some of the characteristics of these people that establish that they are true real deal Christians. And he starts at a very fundamental level. And it's, it's an aspect that Paul brings out that, that troubles some people. So what I'm going to do for now is I, I'm going to skip over verse 3 and take you to verse 4 because I believe that what's contained in verse 4 is the foundational principle of the saved Christian. Look what he says there. He says, Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Your election by God. Paul is affirming that all true Christians occupy the status of one who has been elected by God. A person who professes Christ but is not elected. Well, like we have in the midst of the greater church, Jesus even talked about this. Individuals who are false professors of faith. In the parable of the wheat and the tares, the tares represented those who are in the midst of the, of the church, who appeared for a time like members of the church, but were not actually members of the church. In fact, did damage to the church. In some cases, brought heretical doctrine into the church. These are individuals who obviously have not received the election of God. Now, what exactly do I mean? Scripture teaches us that none of us would ever have been saved unless God first 
drew us to him. Now, how do I know that we would never get saved unless God drew us to him? Well, Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 tells us, and th- these, these, are, these are not equivocal statements. These, these are definitive statements. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. That's the state of the world without Christ. None of us would ever come to him on our own. Jesus said this in John 15, 16, and this this would have probably troubled his listeners. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that God chose you since before the foundations of the world. You see, a lot of people, when they hear the doctrine of election, they think, well, you know, God's all-knowing, and he read my mind, and he knew I was going to blah, 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 blah. And and what you're really saying is, God knew that I was going to choose him, so he chose me. No, not at all. Because before you were you, God chose you. God was going to draw you to him at the point in time, his appointed time in the midst of your life. For me, it took over 30 years. For some people, they get saved as a young child. God's timing is God's timing, you know? Um, Now, here's, here's the troubling aspect of this, okay? The doctrine of election troubles many Christians, and they go in one of two dramatic ways sometimes. One is that they completely reject it. They say, that can't be true. Because I can't imagine a situation in which I am something that I didn't choose to be, especially something as important as being a Christian. And so they dismiss the doctrine of election altogether. And then there are others who go in the opposite extreme. And they say, well, of course, because God chooses you, I don't really need to do anything from the point. If I'm chosen, I'm chosen. And I don't need to do anything to lead anyone else to Christ because if they're chosen, they're coming. And if they're not, they're not. And this is why the terminology, the frozen chosen came into being because it it speaks to someone who, okay, I'm saved, so I'm just going to sit here, sit tight and wait for my ride out of here. And the fact of the matter is both extremes are wrong. First, let's deal with, do I have a say in this matter? The Bible, believe it or not, clearly teaches that notwithstanding the doctrine of election, you must choose Jesus in order to be saved. Now, I'm going to talk about the cognitive dissonance that I'm bringing into your mind right now in a moment, but this is what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that you and I had a choice to make. And you can choose Jesus or you can reject him. Watch this because one of the most famous verses in all the Bible is John 3.16, right? But let's read John 3.16 in its context, 16, 17, 18. This is, what, this is what Jesus said. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, now catch this, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Ooh, whosoever believes. What about those that don't believe? Well, you won't have everlasting life. He goes on to say, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. What Jesus is describing here is two outcomes. For those who choose him, there's everlasting life. For those who don't choose him, you remain in your status quo. And what is that? Condemnation. We are born in condemnation. Hence my statement a few minutes earlier where I said that the number one need that everybody in the world has is peace with God. Peace with God, because peace with God means, God, I'm no longer your enemy. I have confessed my sins. I have humbled myself. I see you and you alone as my king. Oh, so you believe on my name? You have everlasting life. 
See, there's a choice to be made. Uh, Jesus said this in John 6, verse 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Bible is clear on this. You have a choice. You must make a choice. You, you, You don't need to worry about what God knows and what God did. He's telling you, here's the choice. Eternal life or remain where you are, which is condemnation. When Jesus was was in his earthly ministry, and we find him often condemning the Pharisees for the way in which they are misleading the people, and the way in which they were leading the Jewish people away from God, Jesus said this in Matthew 23, 37. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as hens gather their chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You were not willing. Clearly, Jesus is holding them accountable for the choice that they made. And so now we come back to the cognitive dissonance of this. On the one hand, the Bible teaches clearly God elects those who are being saved. God draws those who will be saved to himself. At the same time, the Bible teaches, we hear the gospel, we have a choice. Do I believe it or not believe it? How do we reconcile those two seemingly diametrically opposed concepts? And there's fortunately a simple answer. We don't. We don't reconcile them any more than we reconcile the Trinity. How can can one God be Father, Son, Holy Spirit? You realize how many literal billions of people in the world reject Christianity on that point alone? You say you worship one God. You actually have three gods. No, we have one God expressed in three persons. Now, in man's capacity to reason, that's hard to work out. Equally, we are told in Scripture that God must draw us, but we must make a choice. And so that seems to be an irreconcilable difference, and yet there it is. It's the truth. And so we don't try to reconcile it. And I know there are, there are, there are theologians and, and authors of books who make a whole career on taking one of the extreme positions or the other. It's all man's choice or it's all God's election. And they make, they, they make a career out of that. And, and I'm here to tell you, and I'm not just trying to be mealy mouth or take, you know, split the baby, so to speak. This is what the scripture teaches. I've read you the verses, some of the verses. There's even more. And so here's the way I, I find peace in that dichotomy election is the description or the perspective of an all-knowing all-powerful god who is not bound by time and space the way in which we think about things and order things is chronologically don't we 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 have a constant timeline running in our mind and we can run the timeline back if you still have a memory, or we can run the timeline forward and project future, or we can live in the present. But we are captured in time because we are part of God's creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, that's the creation of time, God created the heavens and the earth, time, space, and matter. God is not bound by that. So if you're troubled about God when God elected you, let me ask you, for the perspective of one who's not bound by time, when did that actually happen? You can't even describe it, can you? Because he doesn't, he's not bound by time. On the other hand, our choice is the description of the perspective of a creature, that is, a, an individual who is part of God's creation, who is bound in time, and therefore in the chronology in which we live, I'm exposed to the gospel. I hear the gospel. I see the lives of Christians. I consider what I'm hearing and seeing. I make a choice. I'm saved. That's our reality. That's not God's reality. That's our reality. So when God speaks to 
the fact that he drew us to him. He's speaking from his perspective, a place we will never be able to go in this life. And when he speaks to the fact that you and I have a choice to make, he's speaking from our perspective. This is what you must do. And I'm good with that. Capiche? Yeah. Okay. Well, that was easy. <laughs> now, another thing that he says about these wonderful people in verse 5, if I get back there, he says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know, what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Now, what he's telling them here is that they are real Christians because they came to the Lord through the right door. What's the door? Well, it's hearing the word. Uh, Paul wrote in Romans 10, 17. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Most Christians in this world, with a very tiny, tiny few exceptions, most Christians in this world, by far, I could almost go ahead and say all, will only come to faith through the hearing of the word of God. It's not through going into a, a, you know, a big mega church where they have an amazing event, uh, worship conference or con concert rather and the swell of the emotions and the music and everything and and people just get down and and they 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 give their heart to christ without ever hearing the word be careful of that kind of experience that leads someone to say that they're saved because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of god there's nothing in there about smoke machines or anything else like that it is it is hearing the word of God and allowing that word of God to fortify us, to edify us, to build us up, to feed us. But there's another aspect to it that we cannot, uh, we cannot ignore. He says, the gospel did not come to you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit. You see, the word of God being worked into our hearts must be worked into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice that when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, he was preaching the word. But what happened to the people? The Holy Spirit fell upon them. And when the combination of the Holy Spirit falling upon them met with the word of God that Peter was speaking, thousands got saved. Jesus told, told his, his disciples, go to Jerusalem and wait there until you receive power. Dudamos is the Greek word which, from which we get the word dynamite. Go there until you get power. Well, the Holy Spirit is the pow in the power of the gospel. It is the thing that, it is the person who takes what the word says and makes it real to us. And the amazing thing about the Holy Spirit working the word of God into us is that the same verses can, can speak to us in one way in a situation that we might find ourselves on day one. And on day 100, we hear the same verse and it, it strikes us in a, in, a, in a way that is very relevant to what we're going through on that day because the word of God is living. It is a living word and the spirit is the life that's in it. And without the spirit, we cannot know the things of God. You know, there are many individuals in our world today who studied deeply in the scriptures and then became atheists and, and, and high-profile critics of the gospel. Now, how can that be? Uh, a perfect example, a man by the name of Ronald Lindsay, founder of the Center for Inquiry. The Center for Inquiry is an organization dedicated to criticizing all aspects of world religions, most especially Christianity and most of the things that they present are very blasphemous. In fact, they have declared a blasphemy day. This was established in 2009, which they celebrate every September in which they come together so that they could, as in mass, blaspheme various religions. Now, the interesting thing about Ronald Lindsay is that he started life as a devout Catholic. He studied religion and philosophy at Georgetown University. He planned to become a priest. And slowly, the would-be priest became an atheistic lawyer. In my case, I was an atheistic lawyer that became a pastor. <laughs> What's the difference? 
The difference is the Holy Spirit of God. Let me show you this. This is what Paul wrote in uh, 1 Corinthians. And this is in chapter 2. In verse 7, he says, he's now speaking the Corinthians from his standpoint and also his team. He says, well, we speak the wisdom of God, a mystery, the hidden wisdom of God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which men's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man, that is the man without the spirit, does not receive the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, let me tell you, my, i just give you a little bit of my, my testimony on this point, because I was the atheistic or maybe agnostic lawyer who had to check everything, verify everything, research everything. That finally came to Christ. What was the difference? It was a, it was a single prayer. The, mo- the most important prayer I ever prayed until the prayer of salvation was a prayer I prayed when I was not saved. It's actually in my testimony on the website. You see, I was, I was jousting with people in my world, my friends, uh, one friend in particular, a very bright guy, who had come to Christ, the most unlikely individual to come to Christ you'll ever meet. And we would have these great conversations, and I'm not, I wasn't hostile, I wasn't dumping on anybody or anything, I was just engaging you know, on, a, on an intellectual level, on what, what the Bible said and, and how could that be true and all of that. And, uh, but I, it was, what was unmistakable was the change in his life. I could just tell you quickly, I knew him because we traveled the whole country as itinerant Frisbee competitors playing tournaments in Canada and North America all over the place. And of course, the whole mantra of the 70s, sex, drugs, rock and roll, all true, all there, all the time, and he was leading the band. And so much so he was a brilliant chemist so he he lived in boulder colorado he was from our hometown but he lived in boulder colorado helped the mob make drugs got busted all of that the next time i see him he's he's got short hair he used to have hair down in the middle of his back he's got short hair he's dressed in a suit he says dave guess what i'm going to london to help plan a church what you say (laughs) you're going to do what sure enough He went to London to help plan a church. Well, within a year, Michelle and I get the opportunity to move to London for my job. We do. We reacquaint. And so we start having these conversations. I could not deny the change in his life. I could not deny the change in the lives of my mother, my father, my brother, my sister. And so I start researching. There was a book, I I remember the name of the book, it was The Search for the Historical Jesus. And the book was supposed to be a a critique on the historicity of the gospel account of Jesus. And you would think that it would ultimately come to the conclusion, eh, nope, not real. I got to the end of the book and the author copped out. He couldn't say it. He couldn't get there. So I'm seeing my friend's life. I'm seeing a lot of the poor scholarship related to the word of God and the the truth of Jesus. And so I pray this prayer. And this is, if you're here today and you're not saved and you're wondering, what what do I do with all this? Why am I even here? I dare you to pray this prayer. Dear Lord, wait, I'm not saved. So I'm not even gonna call you Lord. Dear God, if you exist, please, through your power, Show me the way. Show me the truth. I'm willing. You got to be honest with yourself. See, this is the thing that convicted me. I was arguing against something that I had not read. I had not studied. 
I could not. I mean, this was what I was trained to do. You go, you get smarter on that subject than everybody else, and then you can distinguish it. You can, you can argue from it. You can advocate from it. I hadn't done any of my homework. And so I said, okay, God, I'm going to do my homework. Please help me. If you exist, show me. He'll answer that prayer. If you pray that prayer sincerely, watch out. Because the Holy Spirit is the pow and the power of the word of God. And that's what, that's what, and this is what he's telling them. This is what he's telling them. Now, now he provides further characteristics or qualities of a changed life. Read with me, picking up in verse six. He says, and you became followers of us and the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believed. For from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith towards God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to, do to, we, we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, in this particular section we just read, he's calling out three cardinal virtues of a Christian, which, guess what, are all summarized in the third verse that we skipped over a moment ago. So reading the third verse, he, he's speaking about them, and he says, we're remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. So three things that Paul has called out in their life, which are further described and embellished between verses 6 and 10. First, the work of faith. Look at verses 6. Well, first verse 6 and then 9. He says, For you became followers of us and the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And then down in verse 9, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. What's being described in verses 6 and 9 is the work of faith in their lives. They were walking as Christians. Now, Understand, they're walking as Christians in the midst of withering persecution, both from Greeks and from Jews. And because the Lord has changed them so much, they were now turning from their former religious practices. They were turning from the idols that they worship, and they were focusing on the Lord. They were doing that because of the faith that they had in Christ. They were so sure of who Jesus was and that he had saved them, that they were willing to live in the midst of people who hated them for what they believed and hated them for the things that they were now doing and the things they were now not doing because of their faith. You know people who have true faith because they're willing to live it come what may. This is why every time I go to India, I feel like I came away with so much more than I left them with. Because I see people who walk in their faith every day with the kind of opposition that we certainly up to this point have not known. Now, I think things are heating up here. But we, we I mean, India is listed as the 10th most hostile place in the world in which to be a Christian. And so I go there and I see these people living their faith. And you know what it does? It enhances and builds my faith. And so that's why he, he, he commends them for their, their work of faith. And then the labor of love, verse 3, Paul credits them with a labor of love. And in verses 7 and 8, we read, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Acacia who believe, for from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place, your faith towards God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. You want to know what the labor of love for a Christian is? Sharing the gospel. You know, when you share the gospel simply to show people how righteous and mighty you are, how knowledgeable you are in scripture, man, you err big time. You err. The only 
worthy motivation for sharing the gospel is love. You look in the face of that person you're sharing the gospel with, and maybe they've heard it from you before, and you know that as soon as you start to open your mouth, you're going to get all kinds of negativity coming at you. You're going to get people who, who, who really um, trying to shut you up and shut you down or, or even to mock you. But what you should see in that person's face is what's there, which is somebody who's still in the condemnation in which we were born. I can't think of a single person in my life that I would like to see burn in hell. And there are people who've wronged me and hurt me, just like there's people who've wronged you and hurt you, maybe in in unimaginable ways, things I couldn't even imagine. But I'm telling you that the labor of love is to look in that person's eyes and say, the Lord died for you, the Lord loves you, therefore I love you. And that's the labor of love that he's commending him. So, so effective were they in their labor of love that Paul says, we don't even need to do anything. You know, we, you guys are doing the job. Now, the last thing he commends them on is their patience of hope. And you see that expressed there in verses 9 and 10. He says, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Their hope was in the return of Jesus. When you have hope in something that is future, it affects how you live your life now. It's because they had the hope of Jesus returning that verse 9 tells us they turned from idols. They stopped worshiping all these false gods. You know, one of the questions I heard, one of the Bible lessons I learned, uh, listened to this week that was very, very uh, uh, sobering is, what do you want to be found doing when the Lord returns? The Lord were to call you up right now. What would you be doing in that moment? And these people, they had the hope of heaven. They had the hope that Jesus Christ could return at any moment. And therefore, I'm going to leave behind all the garbage that I was involved in. And I'm going to live my life for him. I want him to find me well doing when he comes. And this is what we should want too. And so here we have it. Um, The Thessalonian church was the real deal. They were elected by God. They received faith through the word of God and that, that faith was ministered by the Holy Spirit of God. They had the work of faith going on in their lives. They had the labor of love because they were spreading the gospel to any and everyone that would listen to them. And they had the hope of his return. And because they had the hope of his return, it purified their lives now. And it probably was the factor that gave them the urgency to share the gospel as prolifically as they did. This is a great example for us. This is what we should, we, we should hold that up and say, I want to be like them. Remember that old Nike commercial? I want to be like Mike. I want to be like these people. I want to be like Jesus. But the fact that this church was doing it is the real deal, is the, the encouragement that we have as a church and as individual Christians that we too can do this. Okay? So what we're going to do now, I want to pray to close the Bible study, and then we're going to take communion together. And it's, it's a wonderful thing that this is the first thing we'll do together as a church on this first day of the year. Because Jesus Christ left his disciples with this ordinance. It's something that God has asked us to do. To take the bread element and the wine element as symbolic of his broken body and his poured out blood. And every time we take that, we remember the deep and abiding love he had for us so that we might have eternal life. Remember that, that two-door uh, choice that God gives us in John chapter 3? For all those that believe eternal life, for those that don't believe, they're condemned already because we live in condemnation. And so we remember that wonderful act of love, that sacrifice. It's called communion because that, that realization draws us close in oneness with Christ. But because we do it as a church, it also draws us close and in oneness with one another. And so if you are here today as a Christian, I would invite you as we come together to uh, come to the table and take the bread and wine element back to your seat. If you're with somebody who cannot serve themselves, please help them. If you're here today and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, or at least you have not surrendered your life to Jesus Christ,
Then, much like John chapter 3 poses, I pose you a choice. You can pray to receive Christ today. It's very simple. It is a heartfelt acknowledgement that I am a sinner. I was born in condemnation. I live in condemnation. And because I do, I sin because I'm a sinner. But Lord, today I want to give you my heart and therefore I confess my sin. I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. And I acknowledge that there's nothing I can do in my own strength or morality to erase that sin. But you, Jesus, because you so love me, you came to earth in human flesh. You lived a sinless life, thereby presenting yourself a perfect sacrifice. And in that perfection, you took my imperfection upon you. You took my sins and the sins of the world upon you to pay the penalty in full for those sins, which is death. You died in my place. And then your father God raised you from the dead to prove to me and to all you have conquered sin and death. And so I put my faith, Jesus, in you today. And I pledge to live for you for the rest of my days. That's it. That's the entirety of praying to receive Christ. If you are here today and you want to pray that prayer, uh, when Vince and Christina start the communion song, I'm going to just take a seat right here in the front row. And I would ask you just come up, sit beside me, let's pray that prayer. And then you can come to the table. You can join in the communion of the saints. You can celebrate the sacrifice of love that Christ has given for you. And so let me close the Bible study and and open the communion table with a prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word, for its truth, and for the Holy Spirit who ministers it to our hearts. Lord, we come here today as people who have been granted new life. Lord, we have peace with God because the grace of God has been bestowed upon us. And so, Father, we are here as thankful people. And Lord, for any in our midst who have not yet crossed that threshold of salvation, I pray, God, that this is a new day. It's the first day of the rest of their lives. I pray, Lord, that you would work in their hearts that they would want to receive you today. Scripture tells us clearly, today is the day of salvation. In fact, everything that one would need to know to be saved has been heard in this place today. And so, Lord, have your way with us all. Thank you for your blood. Thank you for the broken body. All done for us that we might live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you, Jesus. What a beautiful thought to make room in our hearts for Jesus. More than making room, we should give our whole heart to him, Lord. And so, God, as we enter this year, I pray, Lord, you give us clarity. You give us a sense of purpose. We all sense that the time is growing short. And so, Lord, in that, in that time that you've left before you come for us, stir our hearts, God. Stir our hearts to reach out, to preach the gospel. Lord, we don't need to be pastors. We don't need to be theologians. We need to be witnesses. You call us to be witnesses. So, God, give us bold witnesses. Thank you for meeting us here in this place today. We pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Happy New Year.